So this morning, I'm going to answer three of the most common questions that I get about the Bible. And those questions, in, in, in kind of as they, as they flow, are, are, are this, okay? And I don't have a slide yet for this, but three questions that I have for you this morning. Uh, the first is, uh, what is the Bible? And I know that sounds weird. We've grown up in church. Well, the Bible, it's the Word of God. Uh, but but what, what is it? Why is it important? So we're going to look at that really from two different views, and we'll get there in a second. The second question I want to address, and, and this is a, one that a lot of skeptics have, is, is the Bible reliable? Uh, there are a lot of people out there who say, listen, the Bible's been translated so many times, there's no way that it could still mean the same thing that it used to mean. There's no way that it's reliable, and so we're going to address that. And finally is that last question uh, that a, a lot of Christians have, is, is the Bible true? Is the Bible true? And what they're asking is, is there any proof that I could take to somebody that's not a believer? Is there anything I could stand on and say, yeah, yeah, look, here's some evidence that what the Bible says is true. And so we're going to address all three of those things this morning. Uh, But in order to do so, I need you to do me a favor. Reach in your bulletin, grab out that yellow sheet of paper. Uh, Those are your sermon notes. Okay, so grab those out. I've done you a great favor by giving you the first two points. Uh, you can you can thank me later because they're pretty long. Uh, next thing you need to do, you take your writing hand. You need to stretch it out a little bit. We're going to cover a lot of ground uh, this morning in a very short period of time. Uh, but I, I hope and pray that you are going to be blessed with it. So let's let's just kick off with the first question: What is the Bible? What is the Bible? And there's really two answers, and they're the same thing. But the first way that I want to look at the Bible, guys, is I want to look at the Bible from the outside in. I want to look at the Bible from an outsider's perspective without just digging into the Bible and seeing what it says about itself. What can we observe about the Bible if we stand back? Because if you get the big picture of what the Bible really is, you see that this is an astounding book. You see, that it's amazing. And so here's kind of how it works, all right? The Bible is a unique collection of 66 books written over a period of 1,500 years in three different languages on three different continents by 40 different human contributors from diverse backgrounds, get this, this is huge, with consistency of message and without contradictions. I'm going to say that one more time. This is a big deal. The Bible is a unique collection of 66 books written over a period of 1,500 years in three different languages on three different continents by 40 different human contributors from diverse backgrounds with consistency of message and without contradictions. If you think about that for a second, it kind of begins to sink in. This is unlike any other book on the face of the planet. It's unlike any other book on the face of the planet. Just think about that with me for a second. It was written over a span of 1,500 years, yet it's unified and it's consistent. Now, 1,500 years, folks, let's put that together. That's 15, 16, 17 generations probably. 17, 18 maybe generations. Now, I don't know about you folks, but the holidays are coming up. Thanksgiving's around the corner. You know what happens when you get more than one generation together? You know what happens, right? Well, you young whippersnappers don't know what you're talking about. Always got that newfangled stuff and you got to, right? And it's always, my my grandfather used to, you know, he'd always give us a hard time. What's because you listen to all that rap music there, Uh, Sonny? Yeah, that was in the 90s. It was vanilla ice. It wasn't really rap music. But anyway, uh, 
uh, so, so, you know, we're, we're doing this thing and, and it, it just struck me. It's so difficult for us to get different generations to agree upon something. And yet here, when we read the Bible, we, we've got 15, 16, 17, 18 generations with the same message that never changes from one generation to the next. That's incredible. That's incredible. You, you dig a little further and you find out that, that, that it was written by 40 different human contributors speaking different languages from different backgrounds. And then you find out that they're different kinds of people. And you go, how, how could all these people from these different kinds of walks of life all have the same message? Think about this with me. The Bible was written by kings. It was written by fishermen. It was written by priests. It was written by government officials. It was written by farmers. It was written by shepherds. And it was even written by a doctor. And, and yet, regardless of their background, the message is united and consistent from generation to generation. All in different situations, too. Right? Think about this for a second. Remember? Sometimes when we read the Bible, the person that is recording these words has just experienced the thrill of victory. Other times, the person that's penning the words has just experienced the agony of defeat. Sometimes they're completely alone. Other times they're surrounded by other great men and women of the faith. And yet, in every situation, in every circumstance, the message remains the same. The message remains the same. If you think about it hard, you see that the Bible addresses hundreds of controversial issues. Hundreds. Yet its teaching on those issues never differs from page to page, person to person, book to book, Old Testament to New. It remains the same. That sets the Bible apart from every other book that you'll ever read. I I thought about that this week. Can you imagine trying to get 40 authors today into a room to agree upon one controversial issue? Can you imagine? I mean, even if we didn't get them from all over, we could say America, but let's even, let's focus a little more. Let's say we could get 40 writers from Austin, Texas into a room. Do you think that we could get them to agree upon topics like abortion? Or health care, or terrorism, or marriage. What do you think the chances are, folks? Not a chance. We couldn't get 40 people today to agree upon any of those things, yet we have here we have over 40 authors spanning 1,500 years, three different languages, three different continents, all kinds of backgrounds in life, all in agreement. All in agreement. I'm telling you, the Bible is a unique book. But I also want you to know it's so much more than just a unique book. Let's let's take a look at what the Bible says about itself. Let's look inside now. When we peel back the cover, here's what we discover. And again, I wrote this for you, but you can write some of these things down or highlight them if you want to. The Bible is the living, active, authoritative, enduring, flawless, good, instructive, perfect, powerful, revelatory, trustworthy word of God. And there's a bunch of scripture you can look up there. I'm going to read that one more time. It's the living, active, authoritative, enduring, flawless, good, instructive, perfect, powerful, revelatory, trustworthy 
Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness, so that the men and women of God will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Hebrews 4.12 says that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. Uh, It's the only living book on earth, folks, and it makes bold claims about itself. As you read the Bible, it reads you back. As you search its pages, it in turn searches your heart. That's why Mark Twain wrote these words. He said about the Bible, it's not the parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. Mark Twain understood that as you search the Bible, it searches your heart. It points out things in your life that make you uncomfortable. It does that because it is the living, active, breathing word of God. It's what the Bible does. It searches you. Now, there's some skeptics out there that would say, listen, pastor, you can't really do that. You can't use the Bible to explain what the Bible is. That's a circular argument. That's what they say. That's a circular argument. You can't use the Bible to prove the Bible. That's that's talking in circles. And and, and it's funny because those same skeptics, if they were accused of a crime, I guarantee would take the stand in court and stand in their own defense, wouldn't they? That's all we're doing, folks, is we're allowing the Bible to stand in its own defense. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you, you can cross-examine this book as much as you want. Many have tried and all have failed to this point. The Bible speaks for itself. And when it does, it speaks boldly about what it is and what it does. I'm going to share a story with you. You know, a lot of times when people come up against the Bible and they they begin to try to bash the Bible, God just makes a poster child of those people, you know. Uh, By the way, you should be careful. I'll give you an example, and this is just talking about the enduring nature of of, of Scripture. In 1778, the French skeptic Voltaire said, Within a hundred years of my lifetime, the the Bible will be extinct, and so will Christianity. 1778. Fifty years later, the Geneva Bible Society had Voltaire's house and his printing press, and they were printing Bibles in his house on his printing press. What do you think about them apples? Right? Right? That's what the Bible is. The, the, the Bible is the living, active, authoritative, enduring, flawless, good, instructive, perfect, powerful, revelatory, trustworthy word of God. That is what it is. Once we figure out what the Bible is, then we've got to kind of start to look. And, and, and as Christians, this is where I, I, I want you to focus in with me. We've got to understand, is the Bible reliable, Right. Is, is the Bible reliable? And, and kind of here's the misconception here. Uh, when people ask if the Bible is reliable, they're, they're really believing that the Bible's been translated so many times that its message has been changed. You see, in their understanding, the Bible was translated from Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek, and then it was translated into Latin, and then it was translated into German, and then it was translated eventually into English, and therefore, because it's translated from one language to another, to another it's kind of like the telephone game where Sally tells Johnny, you know, the color of her shoes are red, and by the time it gets to Freddie, it's, it's you know, there's a pink flamingo in, in your seat or something, and it's completely changed the meaning. But friends, that's that's a misconception because that's not how we translate the Bible. 
The Bible is never translated from, from a language like, like French or German or Latin then into English. The way that we translate the Bible is we always go back to the original languages. We always translate from the Hebrew and the Aramaic and the Greek. Those are the languages that we seek out and we translate from. That's what translation is. And so, so here's the reality. The Bible is always translated from original languages and from the oldest sources that we can find. It's not the telephone game. So here's a better question. The better question then, once you understand that, is are those manuscripts, the ones that we translate from, are those manuscripts reliable? Now that's a better question, folks. You see, that's not an issue of translation. That's an issue of transmission. Transmission. That's a new concept for some. Here's what transmission is. Transmission has zero to do with translation. Transmission is all about copying a text. So, so the Old Testament was transmitted several times. It was, it was written from, from one scroll onto another, onto another, onto another, onto another. And this is why we still have the Bible, the Word of God today, because we know those scrolls don't endure the test of time, right? The elements around them, they're written on animal skins and papyrus and those things, they dissolve and, and humidity affects them and all. So it's written on, on one and then another. So what happened is it was transmitted. So here's a better question. Are the biblical sources we, we translate? Translate the Bible from, are they reliable? And that's an issue of transmission. I want you to see, guys, no historical book on the face of the planet has been transmitted like the Bible. None. And I'm going to show you by just highlighting two groups, okay? The first group is a group called the Talmudim. And the Talmudim, in Hebrew, it means, it means students. And they were from 100 A.D. to about 500 A.D. And I want you to hear what they did, okay? So they provided all, all the scrolls for the temple. And so they would take animal skins and they would clean them and they would cut them down to size. And, and, and these, these scrolls, these, these skins, had to have a certain uh, number of columns. They had to have a, a certain number of lines. Uh, they had to be 30 uh, letters wide. 30 letters wide. It was, it was very exact. These guys had a special recipe for the ink that could be used in the scrolls that only they knew. And they had to produce their own ink. Now, before they could go to work in transmission, they would have to take a ceremonial bath, a cleansing from head to toe. They would have to get dressed fully in all Jewish regalia. Okay, they were dressed to the nines, baby, when they went to work. They were, they, they, they were all, all, all Jewished up. And then they would begin... They would begin their transmission. Now, here's the deal. When you transmitted, you couldn't transmit anything from memory. That's not transmission. You couldn't add any of your own thoughts. That's not transmission. You had to literally copy word for word, sentence for sentence, line for line, from one to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. And this is what they would do. Now, as they did it, anytime they wrote the word God, they would have to take their pen because God is holy and they would have to wipe it clean. And start completely again. They would ceremonially wash or clean. Now, now, if they ever wrote the proper name of God, Yahweh, they were coming up to that point in text and the word Yahweh appeared. They would stop where they were. They would go and they would take another bath head to toe. They would completely cleanse themselves of any impurity of mind or thought. And then they would go and only then would they write the most precious name of God on that scroll. Friends, this wasn't a joke. This wasn't a party these men gave themselves entirely to the transmission of the Old Testament, unlike any you could ever imagine, okay? No book in history has been transmitted like that. 
Now, if you think those guys took it serious, this next group, man, I'm telling you, even above and beyond, the Masoretes, uh, from 500 to 900 A.D., these guys really like numbers. Anybody a number guy or a number girl here? Anybody like numbers? Yeah? Okay, y'all come see me. I, I'm not big on numbers. All right. Uh, so if, if you're into numbers, here's what they did. They, they, they looked at the Old Testament and, and, and they numbered every single letter. They numbered every single word. They numbered every single syllable. And, 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 and listen, so, so when a manuscript was complete, oh, they also, by the way, they determined the midpoint of every book. And, and, and this is what would happen. Once a manuscript was finished, they would hand it off to a different group of people that were just counters. And they would count that book from the very first word to the very last four words. And then they would count backwards. Then they would go to midpoint and they would count from the midpoint to the beginning. Then they would go to the midpoint and count from the midpoint to the end. And they would go forward and backwards and forward and backwards. And, and, and they only had 30 days to do it. Guess what? If it took longer than 30 days, the manuscript was no good. In the process, they could have up to two errors per page. Up to two errors that, they, that had to be corrected, right? Guess what happens? If you had three errors on any one page, the whole manuscript was thrown out. Can you imagine the book of Isaiah, friends, as you get down into the last chapters of the book of Isaiah and you're in the last chapter and then you run across a page with three errors and the whole manuscript is thrown out. There is no other book in the history of mankind that has been transmitted as carefully as the Old Testament. None in existence. Now, what about the New Testament? New Testament, I've got a little different, uh, I've got a little different guide for you. And I gave away my notes. Somebody wanted my chart, so I'm going to have to rely on some things. But, but when we talk about the New Testament um, and, and its reliability and transmission, I want to show you a, a, a test for historical reliability um, regarding writings of antiquity. Now, writings of antiquity, that just means really old, old text, okay? Writings of antiquity. Uh, it just means old, old writings. So there's a test to see if these old, old writings are reliable. And it's really made up of three things. Here's number one. Number one is the sheer number of manuscripts. How many manuscripts do we have? If we only have one manuscript, what can we compare it against? How can we know if it's right? Okay? But if we have two or three manuscripts, we can now compare the manuscripts and see, oh, well, that's pretty reliable. All three say the same thing. If we have ten, all ten say the same thing. So we start there, okay? Number two, we look at the date that it was originally written and the date that the manuscripts show up. And we want that window to be pretty small. Historians feel comfortable with a window of about a thousand years. Okay, if they can get a manuscript within about a thousand years of when something happened, they tend to really put that in every textbook and say, oh, we're very comfortable with the early time that this was produced, yada, yada, yada. Okay, so they're very comfortable with that. Now, the third is the quality of the manuscripts. You've got to be able to read them, right? It can't be in shreds. It can't just be in pieces. You actually have to be able to read the manuscript. And that's kind of a big deal. So I want to show you a little chart. And these are really ancient, ancient writings here on this chart. I hope you can read them. And I want to give you some examples based on this chart of what we believe in history. Now, number one, we believe in history uh, that, that according to some of this, this literature, we believe that Caesar uh, conquered Gaul, right? Now, we believe that Caesar conquered Gaul, and we believe that because there are ten ancient manuscripts. Okay, you notice there are a thousand years from the time that it was written, but there's ten ancient manuscripts in which Caesar wrote about the Gaelic Wars. 
Okay, so in history, we teach, guess what? The Gaelic Wars happened. Caesar conquered Gaul. And and we believe it wholeheartedly. And we believe it because we have 10 manuscripts that appeared 1,000 years after they were originally written. Okay, we following me? This is how historians work. Okay, another thing we know. We know, according to these great writings, that Socrates, he, he lived and, and he was executed by drinking hemlock, which, by the way, hemlock is a, is a European plant of the parsley family. It's got a little spotted stem. Don't eat that. It's highly poisonous. And we, we know that Socrates died in that way. Why? Because Plato, uh, who was kind of his protege, Plato, who loved Socrates, uh, wrote about it. And we have seven copies of his manuscript that were produced 1,200 years after he originally wrote them. And so we believe it to be historical fact that Socrates indeed was executed by drinking this substance of hemlock. You following me? Okay. Now that's some examples. There's others there. Now, perhaps the greatest secular book of antiquity that we possess was written by Homer. It's the Iliad. Anybody have to read that in college or high school? Yes. Yes, I did. Can you say cliff notes? I can. Okay. I'm sorry. Don't do that. Don't do that. All right. So, so check this out. This is pretty good for secular work, right? And so 643 copies of the Iliad and, and, and within 500 years of when it was originally written, man, we know that, that Homer really wrote this and, and we, we know that all these manuscripts seem to be the same. But look at that next line because, brother, I hope it blows you away. Look at the New Testament, friends. According to these guys, according to these scales, the New Testament, there are one, uh, there are 24,000 copies, 24,000 copies of the New Testament. And, and, and look at that window. How close to the original manuscripts were they? Twenty five years, twenty five years. Friends, I need you to see this by all standards of scholarly accuracy and reliability. The Bible stands head and shoulders above every other literature in history. Is the Bible reliable? You betcha. You betcha. It is. It is. Okay. Well, if we, if we, if we know that it's reliable, if we, if we know and understand that it's transmitted like no other book in history, then how can we prove somebody, how can we prove to somebody that, it, that, it, that it's true? How can we do that? And I want to share some things with you when we start talking about whether or not the Bible is is true. Uh, j- just a, a few ways to go. Number one, I think you should probably start with prophecy, with prophecy. Over two thousand five hundred prophecies in the Bible, folks. Of those prophecies, two thousand of those have already been fulfilled. About five hundred of those are set for future dates. Two thousand Somebody says, well, how do you know that the Bible is true? I don't know. There's 2,000 instances where it says that something's going to happen before it happens. I don't know. I thought I'd stand on that. Right? It's prophecy. It's a big deal. You know, in the Old Testament, there are hundreds of, of references to Jesus. Hundreds of references. So scholars, as they studied all the prophecy written about Jesus, here's what they found. In Jesus' first coming... It's believed that he fulfilled over 300 prophecies in his first coming. In his first coming. Now, now for us to understand that, I want to help you. There was a mathematician, uh, again, good at numbers, right? And this mathematician, really smart guy, he was into probabilities. Anybody have to do probabilities ever in their math classes? Or did you enjoy it? 
I, I, I couldn't stand them. I, oh my goodness, I got through by the skin of my teeth. Um, so probabilities, and so here's what this mathematician did. He picked out eight of the prophecies about Jesus. Eight. And he studied these eight prophecies, and he said, you know what? In order for these eight prophecies to, to all have been fulfilled by one man, the odds of that happening are one in ten to the 17th. Now, if you're not good with numbers, that's a one with 17 zeros behind it. It's a big, big number. Again, if you're not good with numbers, then let me help you out visually. Here's how the mathematician put it. He said, it's kind of like I put you in the middle of the state of Texas. And, and, and you're in the middle of the state of Texas and you're the only one there in the whole state. And then I, I, pile, up sil- I, I pile up silver dollars, two foot high. And they cover the entire state of Texas. And on one of those silver dollars is a little red dot. He said, the chance that you find in the one with the little red dot is the same chance of Jesus fulfilling just eight of the prophecies written about him. They say he fulfilled over 300 in his first coming. If, if you narrow it down to just 60 or so of the prophecies, then, then the probability of Jesus doing those is more than the number of atoms in the universe. Friends, so you want proof, let's turn to prophecy, and we can start there. You want, you want to move beyond that, then, then I'd say, okay, well, let, why don't we look into the miracles and the heroes of the Bible? And pastor, so pastor, why, why would you look at miracles? That doesn't seem like proof at all. Well, here, here's the, the point of, of proof. It, the Bible deals with miracles in just a matter-of-fact way. It's not like some other book. Some other book, if there's a miracle, brother, they're going to let you know. I mean, it's going to be a big deal. But you think about the Bible for a second, right? It says, and then Moses held his staff out and the sea parted and they crossed on dry land. Woohoo! Like, like you know, I mean, you're following me. Are you like me when I read? I'm, I want more. I'm like, come on, God. I mean, don't you mean that then, then Moses stood tall and he looked out at the people and he said, peace be with you. Don't be afraid. And then he took his staff and he held it up towards heaven and there was a little bit of a lightning storm above. Cloud to cloud lightning, you know. And then he took that staff and he placed it over the waters and he held it and it began to vibrate and shake and the water began to ripple and then it began to bubble and then it began to part and there were whales swimming on the side. We could see them as we walked. You'd think, man, he's going to explain more to this, but this is what God says. God says Moses held his staff out over the Red Sea and it parted and they walked in dry land. That's it. Think about Jesus and his miracles, right? So Jesus, here's his first one. He's at a wedding feast and they run out of wine. Baptists get used to this one, right? They're at a wedding feast and run out of wine. So Jesus says, okay, hey, go put some water in these things. Now, now draw one out and let me, okay, this is the best wine at the party. How does it explain? And then Jesus waved his hand over the and said a little incant. None of that. Jesus said, hey, go fill it up with water. Now take some out and go take it to the host. It's done. It's done. I, I think about how he healed, healed, healed blind people, right? You think about the person that comes to him blind and, and, and Jesus, Jesus, God, son of God, uh, you know, fully God, fully man, goes down and spits in the dirt. <laughs> Makes a little spit, Patty. Sticks it in his eye, says, hey, go wash off your heel. It's just matter of fact. You mean that really God spat in the dirt? Are you kidding me? He, he really, that's a, hey, hey, you don't know. It says you're made out of the dust. Maybe that's how he made you too. You're just a big loogie pie. That's what you are. 
We don't know. It, 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 the miracles are just so uh, a matter of fact. I, I wrote down some more. Jesus walking on water, right? It's a, the disciples are in the boat and they think they're going to die. And then comes here comes Jesus walking to them on the water. That's exactly what it says. Jesus comes to them walking on the water. Ah! Right? I mean, hello? It, it should, dude, I want to go back to, to, the, to the gospel writers and say, you mean? And then Jesus came walking to them on the water. Right? I mean, there should be some emphasis in there somewhere. I mean, right? Nope. Nope. They're struggling. There's a big storm. Jesus walked out to him on water. Okay. And then, oh, oh, and then, by the way, and then Peter jumped out of the boat and he walked on water too. Just wanted you to know. Are you kidding me? You kidding me? Lazarus, dead, four days. What does Jesus say? Walks up to him. Boy, I'm about to show you something. Nope. He just walks up. Roll away the stone. Lazarus, come out. Really, Jesus? Come on. I mean, this is climactic, Jesus. We've built up to this. I mean, you're the Son of God. You're about to prove your divinity to everybody. I mean, they're all going to be there, right? Say something cool. Lazarus, come out. Okay. Lame man, right? Lame man just laying there. Laying there, right? And and, and what does Jesus... Jesus just looks at the guy and and he says, Hey, your sins are forgiven. Get up, take your mat and go home. Just matter of fact. Just matter of fact. And what does the Bible do? It's how it treats every miracle that you see. You remember? Old Testament. And then the sun stood still. Huh? And the sun... What? Really? And the sun stood still. Every miracle you see, guys, when you study the miracles of the Bible, they're just a matter of fact. Now, let me ask you, if you were writing it, is that how you record it? Not me, brother. Not me. Boy, I can tell you a whale of a tale. That's what I do, too. That's what fiction does. It takes it, it makes it bigger than it really is. But God says, no, this is how it happens. It's just matter of fact. You want more proof? Look at the heroes of the Bible. You know, this is one of the things that sets the Bible apart from any other book. You know, all the other books try to make their people look perfect. You know that? They want to erase all of their faults and all their failures. They want to hide those things. They really do. But you know what the Bible does? It exposes every fault and every failure in some of its greatest heroes. Think about David. Man after God's own heart commits adultery and murder. David. This is the guy we're supposed to pattern our lives after. Adultery and murder, David. Right? Think about Peter. Peter, Jesus, I I, I love you more than any of these. That's what I promise you, Jesus. I love you more than any of these. And you think about what happened, right? Jesus, you're going to deny me three times. And he does three tragic times. And his heart is just just pulled out. As as I read those those pages, my heart's pulled out too. Think about Noah. It's not a man like him on the face of the earth. There's no one as righteous as Noah. Noah, build me an ark. It's going to rain. God, what's rain? Builds the ark. It rains. Here come all the animals. Do you remember what happens when he gets off the ark? Not so good. Not so good. Think about Paul. Wrote half the New Testament. He's a murderer. He he murdered Christians, by the way. Man, the heroes of the Bible, God's brutally honest about them. He's brutally honest. Brutally honest. That's one of the reasons we can stand on Scripture Number three, I, I tell you, when we looked at proof, we, we look at the uh, unity of Scripture. That first question, right? Forty different authors, okay, over 1,500 years, three languages, three continents, all those things, and yet it's completely unified. It's, it's completely in agreement from cover to cover, book to book, author to author. It's all the same. 
It's a big, 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 big deal. I, I can give you some more stuff on unity of scripture later if you want to come see me. And he, here's the last one. I'm going to close with this. I, I, I want to show you. Uh, now, now, listen, please don't. Please don't misunderstand me. The Bible is not meant to be a science book, okay? It's not. It's not a science textbook. But God is God of science. He created everything we see and everything that we don't see. So there's some cool science stuff in the Bible that maybe you've never seen before. So I'm going to show you just three this morning and we'll be done, okay? Three things. Number one, let's talk about the shape of the earth. So turn with me to the book of Isaiah chapter 40. Book of Isaiah chapter 40. And as we turn there, of course, you know that for years and years and years it was believed that the, the earth was what? It was flat, right? Okay, it, it, was, it was flat. And so forever it was believed that the earth was completely flat. And, uh, but I want you to see, it's funny because God had something to say about it way before all the greatest scientists on earth claimed that the earth was flat. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22, it says, He sits enthroned above the what? The circle of the earth. And its peoples are, peoples are like grasshoppers. He sits enthroned above the sphere of the earth. See, God said the earth was round before any scientist ever said the earth was round. He said it ages and ages and ages ago in the book of Isaiah. And guess what? Now we know the earth is round. Yay, us. We're figuring it out. Okay. Let me show you another one. This is pretty cool. The number of stars, Jeremiah uh, 33. Now, it was believed at one time, it's documented, that scientists believed that there were 1,100 stars. You following me? 1,100, you can write that number down and take that to the bank. That's what they believe. Jeremiah 33, uh, 22. And so uh, I want you to hear what God says about these stars. He says, I will make the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister before me as countless as what? The stars are in the sky or as measureless as the sand in the seashore. So, so God says, again, God says, you can't count the number of stars. We say we can. We've got 1,100 of them. And, and now, of course, we've figured out we can't really count the number of stars. We've already made it to a few billion and we're still adding to those daily. That, that, that in Genesis 1 that says God created the heavens and the earth, that that was kind of a big statement, by the way, in the first sentence of the Bible because we're still figuring out all that he made. It's countless. It's countless. There's, there's, there's billions and billions. Uh, it's also held by scientists. By the way, if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 15, uh, for a long time, scientists believed that all stars were the same. They were, they were not just made up of the same substance, but all the stars were the same. This was their, their scientific belief, the greatest thinkers in our world today. But I want you to see what, what we knew early on in the New Testament. If they just read their Bible, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 41 Paul writes, the, the sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And get this, and star differs from star in splendor. You know what that's saying? It's saying every star is different. Do you know what we now know as we've studied stars more closely? Every star is different. Just like you, just like me, every star is unique. Every single star is different. Now, friends, I, 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 gosh, I'm watching time. Okay, we're running over. Uh, all that to say this. What's the Bible? It's the most unique book on the face of the planet. It's the living, active, enduring word of God. Is it reliable? More reliable than any other book you will ever hold or ever read. Okay? Can you prove it? Yeah. You betcha. There's tons of evidence to back up its claims. So what do we do with all that? Three things and we are out of here. Number one, you read it. You read it. If the Bible is everything that we just talked about, 
If the Bible truly was written by over 40 human contributors over 1,500 years, three different continents, three different languages, written by kings and shepherds and priests and, and you name it, and it's all unified, and it's all without contradiction, then brother, we should be reading it. If the Bible is alive and it's active, and as you search it, it searches you back, and it makes you and molds you into the person that God intends you to be, then you should be reading it. So that's number one. You hear this message, I pray you read your Bible. Here's number two, ready? Read it. Read your Bible. If, if it is everything that we've said it is, you need to read it. I, I, I mean, please hear me seriously, okay? Get this, ready? Number three. Read it. Read it. We went back and forth this week and we talked about this over and over and over. And, and uh, when we got to application, I said, you know, there's really only one we can think of. And there's only one thing you can do when you understand what the Bible is and who has written it and what its purpose is. And that's to commit yourself to rediscovering a love for the Word of God. 